Good evening, listeners. It's September 3rd, 2017, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Kristen Finch. And I'm Adrian Gallo. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature their research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out all about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our upcoming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests, and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight we are joined by Baruz Mahosini from the College of Engineering. Hey Baruz, how's it going? Hi Kristen, and hi Adrian, thank you for inviting me. Definitely. So uh, just to start off, let's uh, tell us who your major advisor was here at Oregon State University and which program of study you were seeking while you were here. Sure. Uh, before we start, I just want to thank the audience for listening and uh, thank you again for inviting me to the show. So my advisor was Professor Sinisha Todorovich, and I was in Electrical Engineering Computer Science School. Cool. And uh, you were seeking a PhD. Yes, I, w- I was seeking a PhD. Which you yes. just finished. Yeah. Yeah, so this is past tense because you already finished. Yeah, that's right. Congratulations. We could give you, or I wish we could give you balloons. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) Or a full round of applause. But yeah. (laughs) Anyway, so why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what you do now and uh, what you were studying at Oregon State? Sure. So uh, my main um, uh, research focus was computer vision and machine learning. And after graduation, I have joined Apple, and I'm in the same field, and I'm doing R&D. Awesome. And so what kind of, what is machine learning and computer vision? Uh, so I think everybody somehow is touching it right now in the current kind of, um, uh, uh, it's the world that we are living in uh, with different devices that you're working with. But just to give some examples, uh, when you are on Facebook, and Facebook, for example, recommends you uh, uh, the names of the people in the face, uh, the faces of the people in a photo, that's part of the computer vision and machine learning. Or, for example, when you are uh, hearing about smart cars and uh, like um, uh, driverless cars, which are supposed to be intelligent cars that drive by themselves, that's computer vision and machine learning together. So, uh, probably everybody knows about them, but they don't know exactly if it's called machine learning or computer vision. So they know it in their lives, definitely. So tell us a little bit more about uh, the self-driving cars and kind of how uh, computer vision comes into making that whole machine drive itself. <laughs> sure. So, uh, so you know that the, 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 the basic uh, uh, goal of artificial intelligence is to develop agents that can perceive the world and can act on that environment and in that world. So uh, smart cars uh, are examples in that general kind of view. And you want cars that can understand the environment that they're driving. If they're on the road, they want to detect pedestrians. They want to know other cars and detect other cars, understand the road, knows the destination. And then you want them to be able to act on that, which means that you want them to speed up. You want them to be able to brake. You want them to slow down. And you also want them to be able to plan ahead and uh, know where they are going and how they can achieve 
the goal that they have. So basically, I, in simple words, that's what they do. So how? So the there's a camera, obviously, and the computer stores that information. But is that all the all the information is just what that car sees, or is it kind of like a, a bigger system? So uh, there are big, there can be multiple different sensors. So definitely, cameras are one of the main important ones, which humans basically use most of the time. But for cars, there are other sensors they can also use. So like infrared, like uh, radar, like uh, uh, information from the GPS satellite. So all of those information can be combined together to help the intelligence system in the car to understand where it is in the world and what's observing and then how it can actually uh, act upon that environment. I'd like to flip this car in reverse for a moment because I'd like to <laughs> differentiate the difference between what we have been doing a lot in the past and what we call hard coding. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we make a decision tree, but we will code in, you know, if this, then that. And machine learning is substantially different than that kind of thing because we don't have to explicitly tell the computer all the infinite number of possibilities. So can you help us kind of unpack that a little bit and why machine learning is so revolutionary? I think that's a very good uh, good point that you're uh, actually pointing out. So the main difference between the machine learning and traditional artificial intelligence system is usually in the traditional AI, you, uh, the, the, the computer scientist or the developer or the programmer used to explicitly mention what are the steps that that specific agent, that intelligent agent, uh, should actually perform and should do. Uh, unlike that in machine learning, instead of explicitly mentioning those steps as a hard code, as you mentioned, you try to provide data to that agent and try to develop algorithms that that intelligence system can learn from that. And by those algorithms, it's actually depending on the data that you're providing to learn what could be a useful kind of uh, model that it can build on top of that to understand what is that data about and how it can actually use that data. So this is where you typically, for machine learning, you have kind of test data, and then after it kind of understands that test data, then you kind of send it out running into the world where it begins learning on its own as opposed to us humans are are actually limiting you know how much computers can do because we are hard coding things that's true to some degree so there are different types of intelligent agents not all of them can learn from the world by themselves so it depends but yet at the ultimate goal you would like to based on some prior knowledge learn something and then let the agent go to the world and try to learn more and more and more by observing more data but uh, not all systems are like that. So because it might be very hard to just let an agent like go and uh, like perform in the real world. So there are multiple different levels of that. But basically, that's true. So you have a training data, and then you learn a system, and then you try to make sure that that training data is as close as it can be to the data that in the real world that agent might face or might observe. So one thing I heard is that in Silicon Valley, where a lot of these autonomous cars are being used is... Uh, satellites have already very, very closely measured the height of the curb, the angle of this, the angle of the light, because we're still kind of in phase one of learning or of teaching computers how to learn, um, and and w w with that, you know, what are the difficulties that 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 they have found so far in machine learning? Like, what are the road bumps per se? <laughs> so, uh, I mean, there are definitely multiple different uh, difficulties. On the, on the uh, long run for this problem. So I think we are still, I mean, for, that's my opinion, we are still way uh, ahead 
in terms of what we want to be and what we actually have right now. So we are so we are very good and we are doing very good in the like self-driving cars right now, but it's still not what it should be. That's what I mean. So mm-hmm. and uh, the, the the main difficulty from my perspective is the the world is much more complex than the training data that we usually provide and it's hard to provide uh, annotated training data which annotated means that people should sit and like individually label or individually mention what that data is about and to provide that amount of data to have a reliable system it's hard so I think the, 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 the hard part is to see if we can train systems without providing that annotated data and just by providing the raw data and if it can help the model. I mean, it can help us to like learn a model that can actually uh, do something with that unlabeled data. That's the basic bottleneck, I think, right now. Because we have lots of data, so everybody is recording <laughs> something. We have lots of videos and the YouTube, but not every, everybody... Uh, labels them, or we have annotations that are useful for training, like uh, intelligent systems. So that's the part that is not yet there. And of course, like in theory, there are so many things that need to be resolved. So part of this, uh, on the I guess ground level of machine learning, is that you have to have a human actually go in and annotate these things, and that kind of leads us into your work at Oregon State, where you did have users who are annotating. Uh, videos more for one of the projects that you're doing. Do you want to um, describe a little bit about specifically about the project um, for video summarization? Sure. Um, so, uh, so when I started my PhD, I started to work on a, a project uh, uh, for analyzing American football videos. And in that project, uh, uh, what we wanted to have uh, was to have an intelligent system that can uh, extract useful information from uh, uh, videos from American football in colleges and high schools. And uh, it's very important for uh, intelligence systems to be able to understand uh, uh, how they can help humans. For example, in this specific example, what we had is that we had videos which were not annotated in time, and we wanted to see where the game exactly, for example, starts. And we have multiple different game types, like we have like huddling, and then we have like the pound, we have penalty, we have kickoffs, and all of these have different visual patterns. So we wanted to learn a system and learn a model that can provide exact timing of where this game starts in a long video, and that will help us to like save a lot of uh, time from the person who wants to observe this video for future, like the coach, if he wants to see the uh, behavior of the opponents in the game, or even for saving the amount of data that we need to have in the uh uh, storage to be able to keep all of these videos. So if we can just cut the parts of a video which is not useful, we can just short. I mean, uh, have a shorter video and then uh, save that video. Yeah, so the, for example, the the football game that went on uh, this Saturday, yesterday, mm-hmm. that was a four hour game. But of course, the running time of football is really only sixty minutes. But even then, if you're a coach and you want to find a wide receiver, then presumably all the throwing plays the computer algorithm would be able to figure out where are all the throwing plays. I want to show you just those, you know, two minutes of video with all the throwing plays. That's exactly true. So uh, American football is a specific kind of game because it's an episodic game. So it's not a continuous game. So usually what happens is specifically in American football is that you have this smaller clips. So it's, it, it might be even, 
be an easier problem in American football. But if you consider other sports like soccer or like basketball, which is not episodic, it's a continuous game, that's even a more challenging problem, for example. And it might not be four hours, but usually it's longer than those small clips that you get from American football. And that's where my second, like, or second to the last work at uh, my um, PhD research uh, comes in, which was video summarization, as Christian mentioned. So in that project, we were like trying to see for a very long video, which we do not have necessarily one single event, like a start of the game, can we kind of uh, identify the highlights of that video? And as you said, just like uh, summarize it such that those highlights are keep in the same uh, like f- uh, frequency and then uh, just make that other parts shorter, which are not useful for the audience who are watching that specific one. As you mentioned, like go very fast, and then when it's like a certain part of the game, like slow down, watch it like carefully, and then fast again. So after that, so as you said, it's an interesting problem, and uh, I think it's going to save a lot of time. And imagine that in YouTube videos, where you have shorter highlights of each YouTube video, and instead of like scrolling yourself, the model can provide you those highlights and jump forward exactly very cool so so then uh just to break it down a little bit uh so to build this or to train the model right you have to actually have humans who are going in and finding those like highlight moments and then feeding that data to the computer and then from there the computer can try and come up with the highlights on its own right that's true. So uh, there are multiple approaches. One approach is, as you mentioned, use human annotators to provide those highlights and then learn a system based on those given annotations or given highlights and then ask the same system to see a new video which there is no highlights available and then ask it to find similar highlights that it's seeing. It's going to be appropriate or like reasonably close to the highlights that it has seen. What I worked on was uh, a little bit different. So we were trying to avoid that human annotation because, as I said at the beginning of the talk, that's, I think, the bottleneck. It you, sounds expensive, th- too. That takes ex- a lot of time. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So you don't have enough people to like go through the YouTube videos and then uh, annotate them. So we were working on a kind of approach which we successfully uh, made it work to some degree to be able to summarize a video without actually supervised uh, kind of annotation from human users. And that's, I think, uh, the way that we should go ahead because we are not going to be able to provide enough annotations for every single act, uh, like uh, problem that we are going to solve, which are real problems around us. So it's going to be hard. Can you give us an idea of one of these uh, YouTube videos that were that were annotated by a human? You, you had you had talked about uh, cleaning some dog ears. Yeah, yeah. So in that, so one of the so usually what happens in our field is that we have this standard data set that are publicly available, and so many times they are YouTube videos, and people download them and put them in a data set, and then provide some summaries of those. And one of these videos, which uh, I was always interested, in, is uh, they were showing how to clean uh, a dog's ear. And because uh, dog's the, ears are very sensitive, very sensitive, exactly. And yeah. then, the, so it was an advertisement video. So they were advertising also a product, and they were oh. showing how to clean with that specific product. But probably most of those advertisement part and talking about the product like specifics might not be informative because that video was about how to clean. It was not about what is this product about. So. And it was interesting for us to see if you are going to be able to capture those parts of the video that the the person is actually performing the cleaning part. And we actually do not um, have a lot of video frames 
from the parts that are not necessarily about that specific action where the, to- where the guy is talking by himself without actually showing how to clean the dog's ear. So, uh, and this was, I think, one of, one of the interesting videos, which I thought is going to be inspiring in terms of what this video summarization can do and can help. So one one initial idea is I, I wish I wish you could have used some of your some of your work for uh, like uh, bike mechanic stuff and car mechanic stuff because <laughs> those are notoriously really long videos but really you just need to know how to remove that part or you just need to know how to clean that part and it's thirty seconds of a twenty minute video <laughs> that's that's definitely true and I mean probably you have seen like these applications that they try to like skip frames and like. For a long video, you only will have a few minutes, but usually they are very uniform. You do not have sections that are slow or fast. And I think the, the basic point would be to emphasize and have slower pace for the parts of the video that are important for humans and then pass the, the videos or the frames or the clips that are not very important. I think that would be very interesting, which is non-uniform kind of video summarization. Very cool. Well, I want to remind the listeners that you're tuned in to Katie. KBVR Corvallis 88.7 FM and we are t- we are talking with Baruz Mahosini and uh, he is from the College of Engineering and uh, specifically computer science. Uh, Baruz, just a quick little one-liner about what you do or what you were doing at Oregon State again to remind the listeners. So uh, I was, um, my, my research focus was on computer vision and machine learning and uh, mostly I was working on analyzing videos and specifically I work uh, for a few years on a project for analyzing American football videos and other sub-projects. All so right, well, sorry. <laughs> these videos, or this work is notoriously difficult. You're finding, I mean, you're finding answers to problems that we didn't even know we had. But I think in our previous discussion, that is kind of your driving force is you're always trying to learn more and find ways to solve these problems. So how about we take we take a step back in the time machine and you tell us a little bit about you know how you started off doing computer science and your first experience with that. Sure. Um, so maybe I can talk about wh- where I started. So yeah, yeah. I'm originally from Iran and... Uh, uh, the first time I started uh, uh, working with computers, it was in my third year of high school. And I remember I didn't like computers. Oh, you did it when you started? No, no, no. Before that, before I started, uh-huh. I didn't like computers. And my dad was really like saying, this is probably very, so, because he was an electrical engineer. And then uh-huh. he was saying that this would be a very nice thing and just <laughs> test it. You will like it. And I started programming in QBasic, which is an old language for programming. Probably so many of the audience will not even hear about it. So, <laughs> But... Um, so I, I had this chance to work on a like a competition kind of in in school competition to like develop some softwares and that's how I get into start uh, started with computers and programming and I really got interested and then uh, I uh, started my undergraduate after high school in computer science in Tehran University uh, but uh, after I was done with the undergraduate since I know programming like different languages. I said, okay, this is it. So I don't need anything more than this. Now I know how to program, and there's a huge opportunity of like developing software, which was at the time. And then I worked for a few years. But then I get bored again. <laughs> and the main reason was uh, the programs that I was working, they are basically the same things. As you mentioned, so they're hard-coded at the beginning of this uh, talk. And uh, like developing something again and again and again in different applications, it's not necessarily very interesting. And then I decided to continue and I was like uh, inspired by one of my 
uh, initial works as an undergraduate student, which I was working on uh, this RoboCop competitions. Wait, and, did you say a RoboCop? Yeah. So th- that's a competition <laughs> that the goal is like in 250, in 2050, uh, uh, the goal is to have a robot uh, soccer players to play against human players. And that's that's what is driving that whole kind of uh, international worldwide competition in computer science. And it's not just the software part. It's about the hardware to develop hardware and uh, like mechanical robots to be able to do that. So it's both the physical part and the software part, intelligent part. I, I don't know if I should be excited or scared because me as a soccer player, I see this as competition. I also have a bad hip, so maybe the hardware <laughs> no, fix my hip. <laughs> okay, sorry to interrupt. No, 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 that's good. That's great. So, uh, but uh, what, what, what uh, inspired me at the time is usually at the time when I was working on that project, we used to like code every single details about the game. Like we had, I think, if I remember correctly, there were four or five players, like soft players in the application. And you had to like uh, de- like code every single details. If you have the ball and if your like other player is around you in this radius, try to pass it. If you're close to the goal, like try to uh, kick the ball toward the goal. Uh, but I realized that the soccer game is much more challenging than that. And then that's, this is not going to be something interesting. So later on, when I finished my undergrad and I wanted to start a graduate program, I realized I would like to work on something that helps the intelligence system to really learn what to do. And then I was doing my research and I started artificial intelligence as my graduate program. And after my graduate studies as a master's student, I, uh, which I was working on face recognition and face detection on images, uh, I became interested in videos because I believe that videos are much more complex. They have more information, but usually they're of a less, I mean, lower quality. So they are at the same time bringing more information, but you're losing information at each frame because they do not have high definition kind of images anymore. And um, so I started to look uh, where can I find a good research area and research position, which I can actually find uh, interesting work. And I ended up being at Oregon State. So, <laughs> so going back, going back to the RoboCop, you saw the limitation of you know not being able to code everything into this, uh, to this you know virtual or I guess physical soccer player. You you saw that as an opportunity to kind of push computer science forward. Yeah, so we can say that. Yeah, yeah, to be I mean, part probably, of the movement. Yeah, yeah, probably I was part of exactly. If I was not not the only person, probably I was <laughs> one of the people who who saw that this could be an inter, uh, interesting kind of research area and interesting field generally. But and then again with uh, with machine vision, you saw the limitation of you know not having high definition. You know, you, you do lose some aspect, but you still retain some information there that can exactly. be helpful. You, you also saw that. As an opportunity to maybe I can connect the dots here exactly because uh, so you see uh, we as humans we are living in a kind of four D environment we have three D and then we have time so and uh, I realized that working only on images at the time which was just a two D I mean I was not working on three D computer vision at the time and I didn't have any idea about that but I realized that going from two D to two D plus time which means you have videos and that could be something interesting because you can get much more information when you see a pattern of walking rather than just a single frame of a person standing which might be anything so uh and i think those informations nowadays like you can see that they are being used in so many different aspects of like uh, computer vision and machine learning voice recognition uh, or speech recognition is not necessarily computer vision but is an applied machine learning which is again like 
temporal information that you gain. And uh, when you're typing on your phone and it's recommending the next word, it's again a temporal information. So time can be diff- has different can have different meanings. It's not necessarily like frames in a video. It could be like words in an order in a sentence. So all of those are very interesting uh, parts of applied machine learning, which computer vision is part of that big area. I think that's very forward thinking of you to, at the time that you're working in the 2D space, kind of realize, or you realize that videos are really going to be the way of the future for these machines. If we want these, uh, actually have hardware machines doing, like being an application for a problem, they're going to be seeing images that are more like videos, or really even more dimensions than the 2D plus time. That's definitely (laughs) true. I mean, uh, I think you pointed out, uh, like in the first five minutes of the conversation, that what other information the uh, self-driving cars use, and it's not anymore even 3D plus time, it's going to be like infrared, it's going to be like radar, it's going to be speedometers information, Mm -hmm. it's going to be GPS. So it's it's a kind of multi-dimensional data, and I mean, usually in the field they call it multi-modality because you have different modalities. Like RGB is one modality, then laser is one modality. I don't know, infrared is another modality. So, in combining all of these information together, it will give a huge opportunity for intelligent systems to be able to like even perceive more than us as human beings. So wow. it's not. It might not be even a fair game if you want to play later. <laughs> Dang it! So I guess I'm gonna play all that I can now. The robots are just gonna. Beat the humans at soccer. <laughs> and, you know, in other in other games, they are actually doing that. So in board games, they are yeah, right, already yeah. yes, they've already done that in chess before, and uh, like yeah. So chess, they kind of perfected the artificial intelligence back in the eighties. Yes, exactly. And now, like they are doing it with harder games. Like AlphaGo was one example that they tried to like uh, uh, beat the best like Go player. So, so, so now that you have finished your PhD at Oregon State, I, I wonder now that you are a computer scientist, what what does your dad think of your career choice? Because you are now at the forefront of what electrical engineering, you yeah, know, yeah, on the cutting edge of probably what he thought you might be. I mean, yet you are working for Apple on a job you can't describe. You're literally, <laughs> at the, you're literally at the cutting on edge. The cusp. Um, yeah. So, like, you know, so I wonder, like, how do you view what your dad, you know, tried to instill in you? And how does he view your job? Uh, so I think he, so first of all, uh, he, he's really happy about what I chose and what I did through this past. And I have to say, like, I got a huge support from my uh, mom when I was, like, growing up. And then my dad, like, giving this insights in terms of, because he was in the field to some degree. And he was, like, providing me more information. Uh, but he always still tells me. Don't stop. So whenever we're talking, say, you know, you have to be very good at the work. So when I was at school, it was to do your best at the school, now at work. And I think it's a kind of ongoing challenge always to be able to uh, be on top of your game. And uh, with all respect to, like, all other, like, uh, um, what is it, feels like sports. And it's uh, brain is something that by using it more and more, you will never lose any mm-hmm. so it's not like muscles that they will degrade so brain is always going the more you use it the better it will become so i think it's you have to be always challenging yourself and that would be the most important thing that i learned to do yeah so. 
We'll we'll definitely come back to that point in a little bit. But before we get there, I really wanted to kind of bring up that there's a little, maybe uh, our listeners, they're now more familiar with uh, machine learning and computer vision and artificial intelligence maybe a little bit. But they've probably also heard the media rumblings about maybe the dark side of some of these technologies displacing workers. Could you just uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your thoughts on, on that? Sure. I mean... Uh I, I think I think there are good and uh, maybe as you described dark sides of this uh, that we have to be aware of. So I am. Uh, I mean, there are there are like pioneers in the AI who are like discussing it at a very uh, like more more serious level because it's not just about the technical part; it's about the politics of it, like how to interact with humans, how to like not make chaos because they can be good, they can be bad. Uh, I think uh, my, my personal opinion is there are always going to be opportunities no matter what humans develop. So AI is definitely a very important part of human efforts to make life easier. Uh, but if you go back like 100 years ago, like uh, like what is the steam engines was had the similar thing and so many people were afraid what happens if steam engines become part of our life. I think humans usually adjust themselves and they try to do their best with that new kind of uh, order and they try to like use that new order on uh, in a way that they can live better lives. But I think m- being aware of that and like uh, educating people about the effects and how they should react and what opportunities are going to be out there is the most important thing that we as people we should do for the next generation and even in our generation we have to do it because there are going to be lots of people who are going to be afraid of touching anything that is going to be around it and they might already touching it but they are not aware of that but as soon as they get aware that oh what I was using here it could be something that might cause my uh, job uh, in terms of like I might lose my job because of that specific technology that's something that you have to educate people and uh but I do agree that there are going to be downsides, definitely. So, so I'm I'm going to play the good cop, bad cop. Kristen is the bad cop. Okay. Uh, I'm going to play the good <laughs> cop and ask you know what what shiny examples do you see for your field moving forward? It's like the you know one that I think of is you know if we get uh, automated driving perfect, you know we can zero traffic fatalities, which is I mean kills more people than cancer every year. Yep. Th- that's definitely true. So I, I think I can provide two different examples, in, I mean, which I have in mind. So one of them, as you mentioned, is self-driving car. So first of all, you are going to have uh, drivers which can learn the most recent ways of keeping passengers safe, and it's going to be applied automatically. They are not going to get tired. They are not going to get sleepy. They are not going to speed because they want to get somewhere faster. So there are going to be a lot of safeties that you can actually include this in uh, intelligence system to make driving easier to have, as you may, less casualties. Another example is going to be health. Suppose you have like this intelligence system providing diagnosis for the patients. So rather than one doctor uh, observing like 20,000 patients, 30,000 patients in his lifetime, one system can be uh, uh, observing millions of data all around the world with a huge diverse samples. And then it's going to be applied for the same system all over the world. So it's not like if you are in this hospital, you are going to be able to get a chance to see this doctor. You can have the same intelligence system in a very like distant 
place away from where this one is and have the same information, learn the same information. So this is the huge positive part of it that we have to see. And then we have to learn how to use it in a good way, in a way that uh, helps everyone. So That's a great point that you make because I don't think we've said it yet, but that all of these uh, intelligence systems are kind of sharing the same brain. So everything that the, that one machine learns, all the other machines will have access to as well. And so that can be scary. It's kind of scary to be back on the bad cop side. It's kind of scary <laughs> that they're learning so quickly. But it, as you're saying, for the for the benefits of of life, it is really exciting as well. Exactly. Yeah, because I mean, from my eyes, what that really means is you know you have you have reproducible, more accurate diagnoses in a cheaper form. You know, so if if you don't have access to the best you know doctor from Stanford Medical, you know. Well, you still have that kind of high brain aspect where you still get that same level of health health care. High exactly. confidence in your diagnosis, more peace of mind, perhaps. Exactly. So, well, cool. Well, I think we're. What else do we need to bring up before we're out of time? Well, we can talk to Bruce for. Forever. I know there's so um, many interesting yeah, things, from like the ethical perspective to the technical perspective. Like, how do ones and zeros in the computer correspond to? Like photograph, like that just blows my mind. But <laughs> but you know, I think we have to let That's you get behind home. the curtain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, we'll definitely uh, we do have a blog post on the on blogs.oregonstate.edu/inspiration/inspiration that goes into this a little bit further, a little bit more about um, about Burroughs' work and where you can learn more information about machine learning and computer vision. But we are getting close to the end of time, so we should get into our traditions, Adrian. So our first tradition is we always ask our guests for advice. So what is your advice and who is it to? Um, so, so first of all, I'm not really at a point to advise people, I think, but <laughs> I can give what I know and people can get inspired maybe. I don't know. Hopefully. Hopefully. So uh, so I, I think, I think my, my, the, the, the main important thing that I can say is that never stop educating yourself, no matter where you are at the hierarchy of education. So you might be a high school student, you might be an undergraduate student, or you might be a PhD or a professor. So in the current climate of, at least in the computer science field, I can definitely say that I'm not sure about other fields. That's my sampling. Uh, <laughs> so you should be on top of your game every day. So uh, I have a very good advice from my advisor. He told me that like research papers should be like newspapers. Read one page a day at least. I mean, or one paper a day to just be uh, up to date with what's happening in your field. And uh, the second thing is challenge yourself. Even if the community is not challenging you, that's how you can be one of the people that can change something in your or other people's life. So challenging yourself. And one, one important thing that I would like to point out, which might be for only 50% of the audience, is for the female listeners, uh, uh, my personal kind of understanding is that the community in our field is very biased, maybe because of its engineering thing. But since this is an emerging field, I think uh, the more you guys, I mean, that 50% females are involved, you're going to be able to shape it in a way that you think is going to be appropriate. Because this is going to, artificial intelligence is going to be part of our lives, no matter what. And if you want to be able to... Um, uh, shape it in a way that can benefit that community as well. I'm not saying that people don't want them to benefit, but 
definitely if I am doing something research, I mean, research in this field, I am biased with who am I. And then if we have people like maybe Christian, for example, doing a research in this field, she's going to have a different opinion. So I would really encourage uh, like a female audience uh, who want to study in the computer science field to uh, at least be motivated that there are, there's a huge opportunity in front of them and they can shape a huge part of this field in the future and uh, don't be afraid of it. It's very interesting and challenging. The field is still very undersaturated. There's so much expansion left exactly. to, to happen. Exactly. And a lot of uh, it could benefit very much uh, in policy and in actual like hardware and software from uh, many different voices. Definitely. All right. Well, thank you for, sh- for sharing that advice with us. Uh, our next tradition is for you to provide us with a song for your going out. And okay. so uh, we have that ready to go. But will you tell us which song you picked and why? Uh I chose two songs actually, but I think the one that is like uh, uh, provides me a history of what I did is uh, there's a song uh, called "Power of Love," and it's Celine from Dion. Celine Dion. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, I pronounce it differently in my language. That's why I was like looking to see <laughs> if I can get help. Thank you. And the reason I remember this song is because this is uh, one of the songs uh, or one of the uh, earliest songs that I was listening and I was working on my first computer program at undergraduate school for a project, final project of the first programming course that I had. And I always remember this and I really like it. So, <laughs> and I hope the audience also enjoy it. And what's, what's the second one then? Uh, the second one is, uh, so, uh, is a kind of traditional, it's a new song, but it's with traditional Iranian um, musical instruments. And uh, this is a group that, um, I mean, most of them are like, uh, I think, uh, uh, female singers. So I hope uh, they can enjoy the instrument. People in music probably would enjoy the instruments because they are different from the kind of general pop music kind of instruments. And I would like to like, just spread it out. So. Perfect. So mm-hmm. we'll hear uh, the requests from, I should say, Dr. Mahosini. Oh, no. I, I don't think yeah. <laughs> I never yeah, thought of myself that. like that. Yeah, but it's true now. <laughs> it is true. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank, thank you very you. much, and uh, I uh, thank you again for the audience for listening to the show. Thank you. All right, and this is this has been Inspiration Dissemination. We are on every Sunday at seven p.m. and we got a hot lineup for fall. So definitely stay tuned for in the next weeks for to hear for more phenomenal graduate students from Oregon State University. Baruz Mahosini, thank you so much for talking to us. And this is his song requested, The Power of Love by Celine Dion on KBVR Corvallis. Of love and sleep and time. 